beginning of this chapter, and then we'll work forward to where we just read. So look at verse 1 with me. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So one of these angels shows up to talk to John. One of these angels shows up, and it's the angel that we learned about right there in the opening line, the angel who's going to give John the revelation, who's going to serve as John's guide as he sees these visions and explains these visions to John along the way. Um, so, uh, and what is, what is it, this vision that he's going to see? It says right there in verse 1, it's going to see the judgment of the great prostitute. So we're not going to see her at piano recital. You know, we're not going to see her playing out on the playground. We're going to see this great prostitute, and we're going to see her judgment. We're going to see her demise. Again, we don't know who she is yet, but we'll get there. Verse 3, it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit. So this is a vision that John has. And I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and the beast had seven heads and ten horns. How many heads? Seven. How many horns? Okay, here's a picture that one artist did, a little cartoonish, but, you know, gives you something to go by, um, of what this beast may have looked like. It was a scarlet beast that had seven heads. I mean, this is like crazy fantasy type stuff, right? This is of the genre of, of apocalyptic literature uh, that we get in the scriptures, and that was common in John's day. And so you have the seven-headed beast with ten horns across these ten heads. Verse 4 says, The woman was arrayed, that is, she was dressed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. Abominations are sin. They are egregious sin. We'll learn what that is here in a moment. And filled with the impurities of her sexual immorality. So, so far, this is what John sees. He sees this woman riding like you would ride on a horse, but she's riding on this giant figure, right, this giant caricature of these with seven heads, this beast, and it has ten horns across these seven heads. And she's got a golden cup in her hand, and it's sloshing around with the abominations, with the sins that she has committed on the earth. Verse 5, on her forehead was written a name of mystery. If you read from the King James Version, we use the ESV here, but if you use it, read from the King James Version, I have this title in all capital letters. This is what's tattooed on her forehead. Here it is, Babylon the Great, Mother of, mis- mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, that's not something you want written on your epitaph. No, mother of prostitutes and of er- earth's abominations, right? You're hardly somebody that we would call blessed. So this is not a nice lady. That's what the Bible's trying to tell us here. She's not somebody that you want to go out to dinner with. Um, and I know what you're thinking now. You're thinking to yourself, well, who is this woman? Who does she represent in history? Who is this beast? What are these seven heads? What is all this supposed to mean? Well, scholars have taken a crack at what they thought these seven heads were, what they thought this great prostitute was, what they thought these ten horns were. And so I just want to share with you some of the theories, prevailing theories that are out there today. Here's one of them. I have a little picture for you of the seven continents. It's the seven continents theory, the theory that the seven heads of the beast represent the seven continents of the world, right? And so they're all listed off there on the little map for you. And so that's one theory that's been circulated out there. Well, I got another theory for you. Uh, This is the surrounding nations theory. This is the theory that all the nations that Israel had been at war with over her history leading up to the first century, that all these surrounding nations and city-states represent the ten horns of the nation. And so those ten horns are going to rise up against Israel. It's going to be that big final battle. And so that's another theory that's out there. I mean, they got it all worked out, right? 
Um, here's one more for you. I'll save the best for last. And this is the Pope as the Antichrist theory, right? So this, they start with Pope Pius XI. So the counting back seven, because we got seven heads. We're going to count back seven. And we're going to work our way all the way up to Pope Benedict, who wasn't around very long. And if you read the text, it says they'll only be around for a little while. And then they'll come to the last one. And so they see Pope Francis, who can't even run his own church these days, is actually going to take over the UN, is going to take over the currency of the euro, and is going to establish that as a global currency. And is then from, from, the, from, from Rome is going to run the whole world. And so that's one of the theories, one of the prevailing theories that's out there these days as to what all of this means. Um, are you confused? Right? So was John. So you're in really good company because he's scratching his head. Look at verse 6, it says. Everybody doing okay? Yeah, y'all were really quiet last week. We're better this week. Had a little time to let all that digest. Okay, verse 6, it says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. So that's what's in their cup, right? That's the abominations. That's her egregious sins that she's drunk. That's what she's been drinking, right? Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So whoever this woman is, whatever this thing's been up to, this beast has been out there, the havoc that it's been creating, it's been targeted toward the, the martyrs. It's been targeted toward believers that have been persecuted, that have been killed. And so she's drunk with their blood. End of verse 6, it says, When I saw her, John says, I marveled greatly. Now, I don't want to get into the whole thing of academia here, but that's a really poor translation of what's in the original language. Uh, the NIV and the CSB versions do a much better job, and they say that I was astonished. It's this idea of being confused. John's not like sitting there going, that is incredible. I'm marveling at that. That's great. No, what's happening here is John's going, what have I just seen, right? He's bewildered. He's befuddled. He's dumbfounded. He doesn't understand what it is that this, this, this thing is that he just saw. And so the angel says to him, well, John, you seem to look confused. I've seen that look on your face a couple of times as I've been showing you all these different revelations. Let me help you out with that. She says, verse 7, or the angel says, verse 7, why do you marvel? Why are you astonished? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and I will tell you the mystery of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. So, in other words, the angel's saying, let me explain to you what it is that you just saw. Now, we would expect that the explanation would not be a further mystery, that, it would make, that the explanation would make sense to John, that he would go, oh, okay, now I understand what it is that I just saw. That's what we would expect. That's what an explanation does. It brings you from a place of confusion, a place of lack of knowledge, to a place of understanding, right? And so John expects that's what I'm going to experience here as you continue to talk. And so let's read through these next couple of verses. Um, we, you know, if, the, if the explanation was that the Antichrist was the Pope, would that have made sense to John? No. Because there's no Catholic church in the first century. There's no guys walking around with white robes and a little beanie on their head, right? They don't know what that is. Um, would it would it made sense to John that the, that the seven heads represent the seven continents of the world? No. They hadn't covered that in John's fourth grade geography class, right? He didn't know about Antarctica. He didn't know about South America. They didn't even have a red a round globe sitting on his teacher's desk, right? So that couldn't possibly be the explanation that John would have received because it wouldn't have made any sense to John. So again, whatever the explanation is, it has to be something that made sense to John from a first century perspective. That's the right way to handle the word of truth. All right, here comes the explanation, verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. I'd love to go into that as well, but again, that's like 
technical stuff that y'all just don't care about. All right, so here we go. Verse 9, who is the beast? All right, the seven heads are seven mountains. John immediately went, oh, okay, I totally understand. But again, you and I, not growing up in his fourth grade geography class, are going, I'm still kind of a little bit of, uh, at a loss here, but it says that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, the town in history, the city in history, historically, that has always been known as the city of seven hills or the city of seven mountains is none other than Rome. Doesn't matter if you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, or whatever your millennial is, all the scholars agree, who are serious scholars, for the most part, all of them agree that this is Rome. That that's what we have in view. This was the explanation that was given to John, said that the seven heads represent seven hills. I got a picture of that for you, I think, a slide here. You can see the seven hills, they're labeled. And then you can see another picture that kind of shows a little elevation change. And that's the city of Rome, and it's, it's broadcast, it, it's set across these seven different hills. The names of the hills are Palatine, Abitine, Kalin, Esquiline, Viminal, Quirinial, and Capitoline. Again, it would be very similar to you or I saying, uh, hey, the Big Apple, what city am I talking about? Yeah, you knew that, right? That was in your geography class. If I said the Golden Gate City, what city are we talking about? Right, and so if I said the city of seven hills or the city of seven mountains, John would have gone, yeah, we're talking about Rome. I know that we're talking about Rome. Everybody knows that that's Rome. So what's so great about this explanation is that it makes sense to John. It makes sense to John. Now, the guy that said that the seven heads represent seven continents, well, that guy, you know, obviously he wasn't tuned in to looking at the world through John's eyes. And so he just launched off into some explanation that maybe made sense to him, but it doesn't necessarily made sense to John. All right, so no need for us to speculate on our end what this is all about. The beast is Rome. That's what the Bible's, that's what the, the angel's trying to convey. Verse 10. So the seven heads are also seven kings. Very interesting. So John just heard from the angel that the seven heads have a dual meaning, that they're both Rome and the Roman Empire, but that they're also representative of seven kings. And so if the, if the beast is Rome, follow with me, if the beast is Rome and the beast are also seven kings, we would expect those seven kings to be the kings of, ah, it's all coming together now, right? And so the angel goes on to say, verse 10, so the seven heads are also seven kings about those kings. Five of them have fallen. That is, five of them are dead. They are gone. They're no longer ruling. They're no longer on the throne. One of them is currently the king, and another has yet to come, and when he does come, this king must remain for only a little while. So what did John just hear? John just learned that the seven heads represent the seven hills of Rome, and that these seven heads of the beast also represent the seven kings that rule the Roman Empire, the Caesars, as we may know them. And then verse 10 told him that the at the time of the revelation, as John's receiving this, that five of those, five of those kings are dead, have fallen. One of them currently is, he's the guy that's right now on the throne. And then another one's going to come along, that's number seven, and he's only going to be there for just a little while. Um, yep, that's coming up in a minute. All right, so let me just play a quick game for you with you. Can we play a quick game? Just time out, a quick game. Who is the current president of the United States? I okay, didn't have to work hard for that one. Who was the president before him? All right, who was before him? All right, and Bill Clinton, William Jefferson Clinton. All right, who was the president before him? All right, George H.W., right? He just died recently. And then before him? All right, we got Ronald Reagan, good old Ronnie. And then from Georgia? 
the Mikada, right? The Mikada, the peanut farmer, right? So that's seven. You just listed off seven of the former rulers or presidents, if you would, of our country. So it wasn't really tough. Some of y'all could have kept on going. It's kind of a fun game. You can do that on the ride home in the, in the car. But for John to list off the seven rulers or the seven Caesars of Rome, this, again, in his day, he sat in, in history class. He knows these guys, and he just lists them off. And so I got a list of those Roman emperors for you here. You can see them listed off. The first of them starting with Julius Caesar, the second being Augustus, the third Tiberius, who was the Caesar at the time of Christ. So he was the guy that was ruling. There's a whole lot of great history there that we can't get into today. But um, then you also have Gaius, who was also known as Caligula, number five. Then you got Claudius, number six. And then the one who is, I'm, I'm sorry, that was number five. And then the one who currently is, is who's number, number six? Nero, right? Nero Caesar. So let me tell you, just that's, that's the one who is, right? And John's reckoning. So you got five have fallen, all the way down to uh, Claudius, and then you got one who is, number six. And so that's Nero. Let me tell you a little bit about Nero. Nero, uh, I've got a picture of Rondo. Do we have a picture? Yeah, we had a picture of him on the, uh, on the slide with all the emperors. You could see that's the bust of Nero there. Um, Nero ruled from 54 AD to 68 AD, um, which means he died just two years before the destruction of Jerusalem. That'll come up again, so just hang on to that. Not today, but it'll come up in a future sermon. So he died just two years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was known as the worst, the most depraved, the most lunatic, the most compulsive, cruel, and vindictive of all of Rome's emperors. He had his mother executed five years into his reign. He would execute senators if he heard a rumor that they were being disloyal to him. So if a senator wanted to get rid of another senator, so if if, uh, Mitch wanted to get rid of McConnell, no, that's Mitch McConnell. If McConnell wanted to get rid of, thank you, Schumer, then uh, he would just start a rumor that he was doing something against Nero, and Nero would go and take out Schumer. And so that's the way things would work. It was a, it was a terrible era for politics and for the Roman people and for the subjects of the Roman Empire. Um, at one point, Nero wanted to expand his palace, and in the backyard of his palace were a bunch of apartment buildings and a bunch of houses and some slums. And so he went, sent some soldiers back there to go light the place on fire so they could just burn everybody out without announcing that that's you know, just like, oh, some fire happened. I don't know how that, how did that happen? And so what he does is he sends these soldiers out there to go light the, light the area on fire and half the city ends up burning down. Half of Rome ends up burning down. And so Nero can't take the blame for this. And so he points the finger at the Christians and so, the, so that begins a persecution across the Roman Empire of all of the Christians. That's where a lot of that came from. Um, you got a couple pictures here of some of the persecution of the Christians. You can see them in the arena being attacked by the lions. You can see them uh, being lit on fire. There's one picture that has um, uh, Nero sitting on his little uh, palisade area, and he's looking out at these Christians that are attached to poles. And some of them, then he had them impaled on poles. Some of them, he had them t- mounted to poles, and they would put black tar and pitch all over them, and then they would light them on fire, and they would burn into the night, and they would line the streets. And this is the kind of stuff, this is the kind of sick, twisted, lunatic that uh, kind of stuff that Nero was up to. Mothers, children, old men, he didn't care, light them all. He was ruthless. He ended up committing suicide. I think I've got this right. I'm, I didn't look it up ahead of time, so don't quote me on it. But Nero stabbed himself in the throat. Does anybody know that for sure? Anyhow, that's how he, I know he committed suicide. I, I think he stabbed himself in the throat. That was just part of his depravity. 
And uh, don't forget that Nero was also responsible for killing two of the most well-known Christians in, in history. The Apostle Paul had his head cut off. And right there in what we call today as St. Peter's Square, he had St. Peter nailed and crucified to a cross upside down. Nero was responsible for both of them. Friends, life under Nero, especially toward the end of his reign, was exactly what we see in view of the great prostitute. Nero was drunk on the blood of the saints, on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This image of Nero fits perfectly into what, uh, what the angel is describing here. Five have fallen. One of them is, number six, Nero. <clears throat> and um, flip over with me real briefly. I want to just show you one more um, evidence of this as to who we're talking about uh, to chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13. Um, we're going to look at verse 12. I want to get to 16, 17, 18. We'll get there in a second, but let's look at verse 12 really quick because what's just happened in Revelation chapter 13, and by the way, if you're interested, there are two Sunday school, one Sunday school class and one small group that are following along with this series. They have a Bible study that's been written. One of those is at Grover, Grover Wave, Reverend Liz's house on Sunday evenings, and so you can go to their house on Sunday evenings and be a part of the Bible study that follows right along with this if you want to dig in a little deeper. And then also Mike Pauley's Sunday school class on Sunday morning is doing the same thing. They're, they're following along with this. Um, but in Revelation chapter 13, um, John has just had a, a vision of this beast, right, with the seven heads and the ten horns. And uh, trying to identify this beast um, here in chapter 12, and then another beast shows up, a second one that's smaller in size, but it's going out there and doing the bidding. It says, verse 12, that it exercises all the authority of the first beast. So there's a second beast that appears. It's wandering around. It rises up out of the sea, just like this, this other one rised up out of the sea. And it's going around doing the bidding. It's going around doing the work of the first beast. Verse 17 says that, or verse 16 says, John writes, that this beast causes both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, if you want to get real literal about that, about this, and remember, we're in the most figurative book of the Bible. This is apocalyptic literature. Um, people have looked at this and have said, hey, look, there's an actual mark on the hand. There's an actual mark on their forehead or mark on their arm that these people receive. But uh, friends, again, this is speaking in a figurative way about this mark or about this label. And what is this label? It goes on to tell us, verse 17, so no one can buy or sell the mark unless they have the mark of the beast, the mark of its name, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is, the, that is the number, the number of a man. So this number is not the number of an angel. It's not the number of, of a group of people. It's the number of a person. So this number that the Bible is about ready to give us is supposed to coincide with somebody's name. You follow that? And here's the number says in the verse 18, the number is 666. You've heard that. You've had people speculate about what that's all about, the mark of the beast, all this kind of stuff. Now, in ancient days, let me give you just a little history lesson here. In ancient days, alpha, alphabet letters had two purposes. One of them was to be used in written language. So it was a, for a form of communication through written language. But also, those letters had a numerical value that was assigned to them. For example, take a look at the Roman numerals, right? We have the letter I, and it represents the value of 
one, right? You learned this in school, right? Back in the day. You have the, uh, the Roman letter V, and it represents the Roman numeral of value of five, right? X equals 10, and you go on. You get my, my idea. So, the, so there's a dual purpose for alphabet letters. One is that they serve to represent for written communication, and also they serve as a numerical value. Well, the Hebrew language was written just the same way. And so let me show you a couple of Hebrew letters here, and you can see the values that go along with these letters. Now, I didn't do Hebrew when I was in school. Um, I did Greek when I was in school, didn't do Hebrew, so I'm just going to, I'm going by what the scholars have to tell me here. Um, but each of, these, each of these letters that you see here in Hebrew have a numerical value assigned to them. Let's bring it all together here, okay? Take Nero Caesar's name, written in Hebrew, and there it is, right? See it down at the bottom of the screen. You take his, take his name written in Hebrew. Those are the Hebrew letters, alphabet letters. You add up the value of all of those letters, and what do you get? Six hundred and sixty-six. I know I'm in the way, aren't I? I see people diving this way and that way. All right, so you get six hundred and sixty-six. You can maybe take a snapshot and do the math out later. But I mean, the point is that it, this is called a gematria riddle. It was not that uncommon in John's day in the first century for people to communicate this way. So rather than say Nero's name in the letter and potentially get anybody who possessed this letter or to tip off the Romans to who we're talking about here, they wrote it in a riddle form so that people who were Jewish people, right, who knew Hebrew and knew the value of the letters, they could calculate his name and go, oh, we know exactly who John's talking about now, um, as do we. Um, okay. Uh, everybody doing all right? You, I, I told Brian this morning, um, I bet there was 50 slides that I tossed at him. Yeah, the poor guy, he was just getting them all, through the email all Friday night and through Saturday morning. It was funny. Um, but anyhow, so that's a lot of information for you to take in. All right, so that brings this point in our sermon that we like to ask every week, which is, hey, that's really great information, but I mean, what difference does it make to me? How does this help me getting my kids off to school? I mean, we got soccer season starting up. What, is it, what difference does this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can quickly here answer that. Friends, we live in an incredible nation. We live in the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation that the world has ever known. We live in it right now today. And that makes us pretty special, makes, things, makes us pretty fortunate to be able to live in this nation at this time in history. We have food in our fridge. We have that third world countries. We have more food in our fridge that people who live in third world country probably won't even see in a, over the course of a whole month. Uh, we have spacious homes. We live in climate-controlled areas. Uh, we have security cameras and locks on our doors. We have exterminators that keep the bugs out of our house, right? We have more clothes in our closet than many people will probably see in a lifetime, um, looking back through human history. Our ability to identify with the early Christians and that lion's uh, arena, our ability to identify with the persecuted Christians who were impaled on poles and who stood there while Grandpa was being lit on fire, and so on and so forth. Friends, our ability to relate to and connect with what those people went through, it's almost unobtainable. And we can listen to it, we can, we can kind of, you know, wince at it, but we, we can't really know what it was like uh, to go through that, what it was like to experience that. But one thing that we can do is to know that they were willing, they were willing in the first century to practice their private faith in a public way. When the moment came, denounce Jesus, 
or head to the pole. They wouldn't denounce Jesus, and they willingly walked to the pole and allowed somebody to do that horrible thing. Rather than renounce Christ, they were willing to be lit on fire. Rather than renounce Christ, they were willing to be thrown in with the lions and impaled by spears and have their children and their wives suffer the same. Nero showed no deference of person. Why? Because they loved Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to serve him. Friends, This is who uh, the Bible had in mind, these early Christians, when the writer of Hebrews wrote Hebrews 11 and verse 36. Some of them faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Verse 38, and the world, the world was not worthy of them. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Friends, the more we practice our private faith in public ways, the more the world is going to begin throwing darts and spears and stones at you and me. It's coming, and it will continue to happen. If you want to avoid suffering, if you want to avoid persecution, if you want to avoid being ostracized, if you want comfort, friends, deny Jesus publicly. Deny him publicly, and the world will let you be. But friends, our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ who have through the ages suffered for Christ beckon us not to let the cost of following Jesus silence our faith, we must put our private faith into public, uh, in a public, live it out in a public way. Um, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to engage your word this morning. We thank you for um, showing to us uh, some of the mystery that you revealed faithfully to John. Lord, we ask that you take the things which we've talked about today that we would see the faith of those that have gone before us and their willingness to suffer greatly for the sake of the gospel, Lord, that you would put that same determination in our hearts. Whatever our sphere of influence, whatever our community that we run and walk in, Lord, may we be counted amongst yours. May we not deny the name of Christ when it would be easier, more comfortable to do so. Lord, as we gather now around this table representing your broken body and your shed blood, we're reminded that you are willing to go all the way. You are willing to give it all. And Lord, may that inspire us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit to be willing to do the same, to give our all for you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.